Totally Football Show. It's been another box office weekend. From crazy pitch invasions to Baggy's decision to Roger Moore, we've got a lot to talk about. We relive the highlights like Shaka's Swiss Waz and the lowlights like Jack Grealish's Brum Plum and all of the big stories as we count down to another big midweek in the Champions League. All that and more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Jimbo's at the wheel and reclining in our luxuriously upholstered interior today. We have Tom Williams. Good morning, James. Speaking that football, mixing up Michael Cox. Hi, James. Big week of European football, of course. And thank goodness, therefore, that James Horncastle's here. Hi, James. Uh, Have you had a good weekend, James? Spectacular. Yeah, Paul McIntosh is feeling chipper. He says, is this one of the best Premier League seasons in years? We've got a title race, a seriously tight battle for third and fourth, at least half a dozen teams in the relegation fight, and even a decent scrap for seventh. I was at St James's Park on Saturday, and to be honest, isn't everything brilliant? Well, it was a remarkable game, that one at St James's Park, one we'll be coming to later on. So many things that Paul mentions there. Where, Where do you want to start? At the top. At the top. You're listening to The Totally Furble Show in association with Paddy Power. Still just a one point between Man City and Liverpool, both of whom have Bundesliga opposition coming up Tuesday and Wednesday. Staring at the entrails of City's match and, and Liverpool's, what emerges, do you think? That we clearly need VAR. <laughs> because of the Raheem Sterling <laughs> opener against Watford. Well, and also Burnley's opener against, ah, uh, yeah. against Liverpool as Fair. well. You know. So, Fair. you know, maybe that's why it's one of the best Premier League seasons in memory, because next year we'll have VAR to ruin it all. <laughs> <laughs> so Watford had frustrated City for 45 minutes, and then as soon as the second half opens, that bizarre decision to allow that goal. What, what was the basis of it? That it had been touched by a defender or, or what? Yeah, I, I, I think that the defender was in control of his touch and had deliberately played it, but... Uh... You know, to go back to the debate we had last week, I think it, I think he's challenging for the ball. I think he and Sterling are in a challenge for the ball, and Jan Matt's only making that tackle or challenge or clearance because Sterling's there. I can't see how that can be offside, either kind of morally in in terms of what we think the offside rule should be, or even according to the current regulations. I just think that's that's clearly offside. Was Sterling in the course of minutes then went on to make it three nil, kind of shifting the story across to what an incredible season he's having. Yeah, he did really well. And I think the three goals show different ways he's become such a good goal scorer. One, you know, the the final goal was a fantastic finish, a dink over the goalkeeper. The second one was the goal he scored a lot, which is basically an open goal after someone's done the hard work and squared across the six-yard box. And even the first, he has scored quite a lot of lucky goals, I would say, over the last, well, since the start of last season. There was one at Bournemouth that took a strange deflection. There was another one that hit him and looped into the net. And I guess that comes just from getting in the right position. Don't tell Pep they're lucky goals. Pep's not having any of that luck business, as you probably saw post-match. But, but what about from um, Watford's point of view, having done such a sterling job in that first half, had that goal not gone in, do, could you see them maybe hanging on and then throwing De Lefeo and Dini on late and maybe snatching something? Well, you know, De Lefeo did come on and score with his first touch, mm. um, by which point the game was over. Uh, I think the thing with City is the way they dominate matches, even had they not scored from that sterling chance, chances are they're going to score at some point. Uh, I mean, it clearly, it, it leaves a sour taste for Watford knowing that they'd held out until then without conceding and then to concede a goal in those circumstances. But I think the way that City just sort of asphyxiate their opponents, I kind of feel like that breakthrough was probably on its way right. at some well, point. I mean, Heavy Gressier did say that um, that goal, the first one, did change the game completely because Watford, Watford felt a sense of injustice and within 13 minutes the game was gone. You know, they, they never recovered from it. Um, and yeah, I think one of the talking points as the teams came out was that Watford had made, what, seven changes um, for, for that game. Some Liverpool fans' sort of eyes, eyebrows raised about that. And yet it was because he's got a full squad of players, 20, what, 26 players who are all fit and healthy. He realised that he needed a really kind of high-energy performance because, as Tom says, City at home this season, you're not going to have the ball, you're going to have to do a lot of running. They stayed in the game all that time. And yeah, I do have some sympathy for them that ultimately, yeah, they shouldn't have been behind. 
and you know, never were able to kind of get that out of their minds. And and yeah, I think that really did have a, a, a big impact on on the game. Fair enough. Then uh, Sunday, then Liverpool Burnley, which started badly. First of all, it was windy. Uh, then there was Lalana on the team sheet, which provoked an explosion of Neymar looking distressed memes from Liverpool fans. And then Burnley took the lead, a direct from Westwood's corner. I uh, wrote an article last week for ESPN about potential law changes. And one law change I think should happen is I think attackers should be banned from being in the six-yard box uh, when attacking corners. Hang because on. So, sorry, what? Attackers as in the attacking team? The attacking team. Okay. Because it doesn't happen so much in the Premier League aside from kind of lower league teams like Burnley who are in the Premier League, if that makes sense. But you do get a lot of... In the lower, lower leagues, you do just get a lot of goalkeepers being crowded by three men and then just corners whipped in onto the top of the head and I just I don't think that's what football is I don't think it should be I don't think you yeah. should be able to score goals like that it, I think this situation actually was a foul I think it should have been given as a foul but sometimes you have attackers just standing there going I'm not fouling the goalkeeper I'm not doing anything hmm. but they're only there to compromise the goalkeeper's position well the old Big Sam routine from, from Blackburn wasn't it yeah yeah, it's always teams. It's always the same kind of teams who do it. Um, so I think this was a foul, and I, I also don't really Tarkovsky, like Tarkovsky, kind of wasn't it? No, clambering all over. Well, yeah, and also yeah. Cork uh, was Allison. in front of him. So like, just uh, even if uh, Allison was going to jump and kind of claim the cross, uh, he he had to get over Cork first, but then was being held down by Tarkovsky. So I mean, it was kind of he was being doubly obstructed there, really. So and it's it, a pity because a goal being scored direct from a corner is mm. a really exciting thing. A goal Olympico, a real rarity. But then as soon as you saw the replays, it was like ah, that was a blatant foul on the goalkeeper. Yeah. So it all worked out in the end for Liverpool, and, and particularly the Lalana element is who had been re- regarded as one of uh, Klopp's worst decisions when he was brought on as a, as a sub in the previous match in the in the derby, but here. His creativity in midfield and his work rate, was that one of the keys to Liverpool's win? Yeah, I think he played really well. I mean, he was given man of the match by Sky. Um, he's always been a good player, Lallana. He, he he had some really bad injury problems, and I think his problem has been kind of secondary to that in, in the sense that he's never really got back up to full fitness because he hasn't had the matches, and when he's come on, he's looked rusty. But, I mean, he's exactly what Liverpool have been crying out for in some of these games, someone who can connect midfield and attack. And he's also always been kind of up to speed with the pressing obviously played under Pochettino at Southampton I think was geared towards that mindset and we saw that for the Mane goal here the goal came from basically a block tackle on the edge of the opposition box so yeah I think he fits into the system and gives them something different which is great exactly because Bardsley just doesn't even see it coming Mm. like uh, I mean I think Lallana comes sort of out of the box and then comes across and and it's 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 a great sort of sliding counter pressing move, which Klopp was very keen to sort of point out afterwards. But um, yeah, I think a very positive afternoon for for Liverpool. Come back from behind. Um, they obviously had a lot of time to do that because uh, Burnley went ahead early. But to see the front three, a little bit like the the Watford game where Salah doesn't get on the score sheet, but Salah played very well. Um, I thought in terms of just you know even sort of bouncing balls, it being windy, just causing a bit of chaos. Pretty encouraging going going to Munich for that Bayern game where right. you know they obviously didn't score in the first leg, and there's been all that kind of talk of you know um, three what goalless games in in four before this one. So yeah, positives. Good to get just, some goals. Sorry, just to yeah. go back to Lallana. I mean, he was he was one of the first players who seemed to really get what Klopp wanted from Liverpool's players when he arrived in, when was it, October 2015. And he was a really important player that first season. I thought he was the first player who who really showed what could be achieved with players sort of being introduced to Klopp's methods. And as Michael was saying, because of injury and various other things, he's now drifted out of the team. And it's been interesting in recent weeks with all these draws that Liverpool have been having, it, the question always seems to be about, oh, why don't they play Shakiri? Why don't they bring Shakiri on? As if Shakiri is the only backup player capable of giving them something a bit different. And I think what Lalana does well is that, um, you know, he's generally quite a creative player, but also someone very industrious and with it, like incredible stamina, like incredible pair of lungs on him. So I wonder whether we might seeing whether we might start seeing a bit more of him now, now that he's shown that he can be effective uh, in, in those two ways. Mm. Powerful card to deploy. Indeed. In the eight remaining games in this incredibly tight uh, title race. Burnley, only two points off the drop now, have Chelsea City, Man City that is, and Arsenal in their final four games of the season. So worrying times these for the Clarets. One point anyway between the top two. What about in Europe? Spurs and Man United are already through to the Champions League quarterfinals. Can Liverpool and City join them? We're going to discuss that with Raphael Honigstein after this. 
Hello, James. Hey, you're crystal clear. Oh, I'm just putting my... Yeah, no, it's good. Mm. Putting your what? Yeah. <laughs> what are you putting on, Raf? I'm putting something in rather than on. Oh, no, that sounds much worse. Could you take it back out again? It does? Yeah. Oh, okay, hold on. Hold on. All right, listener. Just seconds away now from hearing what Raphael Honigstein's going to say. Hello. Hey, Raphael Honigstein. Uh, it's a big week, Rafa. A big week for Premier League Bundesliga clashes in the Champions League. It certainly is, James. Mm. City, as you'll be aware, are home to Schalke, who they beat 3-2 in Gelsenkirchen. A scoreline much tighter than many people anticipated. Liverpool, meanwhile, are off in freezing Munich after that terrible nil-nil with Bayern at Anfield. Now, Bayern Munich, Rafa, fresh from a 6-0 victory over Wolfsburg at the weekend. What's, what's happened? They've they, they, they really clicked. The draw and the manner of the draw at Anfield was seen as a bit of a turning point in Munich because for once the team played collectively, they defended uh, with a sense of sort of cohesion and togetherness. And while they didn't offer a lot going forward, I think everyone came away with a feeling that this is now um, sort of the moment where maybe things kind of come together as far as the coach and the, his relationship with the team in the dressing room and the relationship of the players with each other is concerned. So it might not have been the most emphatic spectacle, but they they did what they wanted to do. They got what they came for. And I think it was really the, the stepping stone to the sort of performances that you talked about, the 6-0 against Wolfsburg, but also the 5-1 against Gladbach the week before. Bayern kind of finding a sense of rhythm and purpose again, which had been missing, I think, in recent months. All right, so a very different approach in this second leg to that shotless uh, performance in the first one. I'm not sure if the approach is going to be all that different because Bayern would be very wary of Liverpool's counter-attacking prowess. Uh, and away goal for Liverpool would uh, would really tilt the balance of the tie with with a score draw being enough for Liverpool to go through. So I think it could be fairly cagey. Of course, Bayern have to score. They have to offer a little bit more than they did at Anfield, which is next to nothing. But I don't think they'll go for out-and-out attack because Liverpool would just be waiting for that. And we've seen, especially in Europe in the past, that Liverpool enjoy it most when they have one of sort of the, the bigger... Uh, more attacking teams really going at them. That's when they come into their own. How big is the fact that it's against Jurgen Klopp? It's not really a factor as far as the team and the club is concerned, but I think it's something that excites the whole of Germany. It is uh, you know, seen as, as a high-profile game because of Klopp. A lot of people follow Klopp's fortunes. A lot of people always look out for Liverpool's results. And um, it, it makes the tie a lot bigger, but... There are sort of no real open accounts, as we say in German, um, you know, no real unsettled issue as far as his relationship with Bayern is concerned. He himself has always been fairly diplomatic uh, towards Bayern as a team. And uh, the, the big sort of fights and the big um, debates and arguments were always between the Bayern officials rather than uh, Bayern and him or the players and him. OK. Well, you can read more about Jurgen Klopp's past and his relationships with Bayern Munich, of course, in the excellent Feel the Noise a biography of the uh, the German tactical mastermind uh, written, of course... You can, but my book's called Bring the Noise. Oh, <laughs> do you know, I've written... <laughs> That's the Slade. That's the Slade reference you should have had. Bring the Noise by our friend Raphael Honigstein. Yep. <laughs> Rafa, how confident are you for Bayern? Um, look, before the first leg, I made Liverpool's favourites. I think now Bayern, with that decent result, have put it back to 50-50, but it's no more than that. Okay. And I think we once okay. again need to get a little bit lucky. We're in the first leg. It's been forgotten. Mane missed at least one sitter. And they need to offer a lot more going forward. I see. What about City and their clash with Schalke? What kind of percentages are we looking at there? I'd make it 100% City to go through. Um, okay, maybe 99, maybe 98. But things are so bad at Schalke that a 4-2 defeat at Werder Bremen was actually seen as a sign of progress. Uh, for once, they scored a couple of goals. For once, they looked, looked half decent on the ball, but they still conceded four goals and they're still um, you know, staring a relegation fight into the face. I mean, they probably won't get relegated, but they're certainly far away from 
their form of last season when they finished runners-up. So it's really the sort of game I think they can do without. Yes, they can almost play with a sense of freedom and um, there, there is not much uh, uh, riding uh, on that for them. But I think City would uh, have to go to extraordinary lengths of self-destructive effort to get anywhere near um, being in trouble against uh, against Schalke on Tuesday night. It's going to be cold in Munich, wind blowing, snow snowing, all that thing. Tom, what do you think is going to happen in the big Bayern-Liverpool clash? Um, I think the fact that Bayern have, have come into a bit of form augurs well for an interesting match. Um, my suspicion is that Liverpool, with the threat they carry on the counter-attack and with Firmino and Mane being in the goals at the weekend and, and Salah uh, contributing, even if he's not scoring at the moment, I think that should give them enough to go through. Right. That 6-0 win of Wolfsburg putting Bayern Munich top on goal difference ahead of Dortmund at the weekend. James, what do you think the midweek holds for them? Well, Bayern seem to be coming good at exactly the right time. Um, but I think that first leg result does them no favours just because I think um, they will, as Rafa said, have to offer a little more and I think that will work in in Liverpool's favour as well. So I just think the the attacking price, you don't want to, um, to, to be playing a game where away goals um, are going to count so much and Liverpool you know one of the one of the major threats in that regard so I can see Liverpool progressing um, which you know I think is a little bit of a surprise um, given the state that they've been in recently mm. Michael yay nay I agree with Rafa 50-50 you're listening to the Totally Football Show sponsors of Melchester Rovers find out more at RoyTheRoversOfficial.com also coming up this week, you've got Barcelona taking on Lyon and Juventus against Atletico Madrid. Now, the Barcelona-Lyon, that was also goalless in the first leg. So away goals counting double for Lyon. Could they do one of their special European games, Tom? I mean, that's what's required from them. Um, and I think given the extent to which they were dominated in the first leg, nil-nil uh, was a really good result for them. We've seen how dangerous they can be on the counter-attack, um, particularly against City uh, in the group phase. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm guessing that the plan will be to to get men behind the ball, to use uh, the pace of Maxwell Corne, of Bertrand Traore on the, on the flanks. Uh, there's a suggestion in L'Equipe today that um, Memphis Depay might start up front instead of Moussa Dembele. Uh, and Dembele's been in brilliant form of late, um, scoring very regularly, not that great at holding the ball up, uh, and Leon will need an outlet um, you know, when they do get the ball, so that's why Depay might get the nod. Nabil Fakir is back from suspension, another player who is absolutely instrumental to the way that Leon play in terms of you know giving them a foothold in, in the opposition half. And um, the only sort of worry for Leon is the fitness of Marcelo, their Brazilian centre-back, who's sort of the boss of their defence, picked up a thigh injury, I think, uh, against Strasbourg at the weekend, so they're they're sweating over him a little bit but yeah I mean it, it'll be back to the wall but I think from what Leon showed in, in the group phase um, you know they, they do have the ability to, to trouble the big teams when they play on the counter-attack Wow sounds like it's going to be a really tasty game as we saw last week one of the Spanish Biermos go crashing out in a major Champions League surprise I wonder if we could see a second this time it would be an incredible result for Leon clearly Barcelona start as, as overwhelming favourites just like they did in Rome well, indeed, indeed. But I think the fact that this tie is, is much more obviously in the balance than, than the tie against Roma appeared to be given Barcelona's lead. And, you know, they will have learned their lesson from that. So they'll, they'll know Barcelona that they need to be on it. So, yeah, you know, you, you'd back them to go through. But Leon can, can hang in there. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? That game is on Wednesday. So we're going to have a bit of a choice. Watch that or the, the Bayern-Liverpool game. On Tuesday, you've got Man City-Schalke or... Juve's attempts to come from two goals down at home to Atletico Madrid. Am I dreaming or did they produce a bizarre video? Inviting they did, a... with a uh, Scottish guy <laughs> and an English guy walking around the streets of Turin. Yeah. Um, where it was kind of like yin and yang, one saying, oh, definitely not going to come back from this. The other basically saying, yes, they will come back from this. And then arriving at the stadium, convinced that Juventus will come back. Why, why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Who oh. was the yin and who was the yang out of the Scottish and English guys? Like I think was... the Scottish guy was the negative one. Yeah. Seriously, anyway. So, um, but beyond that, I don't know. Did they get into tactical reasons why it might or might not happen? In the video? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, How no, is no, the it's, pure, it's pure on instinct and sort of passion. All right. Um, 
you know, okay. and, and the more the, the the proximity that you have to this this event and the, right. the stadium, they just persuaded the Scotsman. What do you think? Who, which are you with the Scots Scots guy or the English guy? Do you think it's going to happen? Could happen. I think it definitely could happen. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, Allegri after the first leg <laughs> uh, asked for a silver lining, said, "Well, it's only two nil. Uh, we're lucky because it could have been three or four. Um, and uh, he didn't think that they could play as bad as they did in the second half um, at the the Metropolitano. Um, we've seen events the last couple of years um, go away to Bayern Munich and almost pull off uh, an incredible kind of uh, performance there. Go away to Real Madrid and almost pull exactly. off. Exactly. But, yeah. but but what I'm saying is that should make it a great game. Yeah. Um, so, and also Atleti, Diego Costa suspended. Um, Felipe Luis and Lucas Hernandez, I think, are out injured. Mm. Thomas Partey is also suspended as well. Um, so they've got you know, a few issues uh, themselves. Juve without suspended Alexandro. And look, they were able to rest a lot of their best players on Friday, had an extra game to rest, recuperate, prepare for this game. But, you know, a, a lot of focus is going to be on Cristiano Ronaldo right. because so far his Champions League campaign has been pretty underwhelming. One goal in six and a red card. Whereas, of course, this has always been the, the competition in which he's been the... the top scorer in the, the last top six scorer, years. The, the ultimate performer. Do you think he's finally going to turn it on in this what could be the last chance this season? Look, I think he has to, um, because even though he signed a four-year contract, um, there is that sense that this guy is 34 years old. Um, even being the professional that he is, how he looks after his body, you know, you, you, you know, time is is not on his side. It's not on a lot of the other veterans at Juventus's side. You know, you think of Giorgio Chiellini and, and Leonardo Bonucci as well. So. Yeah, even though Allegri after Friday's game was saying, look, if we go out, it's not failure um, because Atletico Madrid are a, a very good side and you know we're always there or thereabouts um, every year that I've been here. A lot of people will look at it that way because mm. that's very much what signing Cristiano Ronaldo was all about. It wasn't to win an eighth consecutive uh, league title. It was to, to end this 23-year wait for the Champions League. And when you look at the teams that have gone out mm. last week, again, there was this sense of, this is a great opportunity. Is Zidane going to Juventus, James? Well, you know what? This is quite interesting reaction from the first leg defeat to Atletico Madrid is that Juventus need to be more like Real Madrid, just as Real Madrid are declining and in, in disgrace. So appoint Zinedine Zidane, sign Marcelo, Isco. Um, so the Marcelo signing, some people are saying is already done or that terms have already be, have been agreed. But the Zidane story, there's something to that, isn't there? More than the Pep to Juve story. Oh yeah, which you know, Pep said he felt sorry for Max Allegri at the, at the weekend for having to put up with these kind of social media rumours. I don't know. I mean, Allegri met with Agnelli in midweek and said that they're going to talk about an extension mm. in the summer. So not about his future, but an extension, which yeah, it kind of is the same thing, but slightly nuanced in a different way. Um, yeah, look, Zidane's still available. There is this sense that he's a Juve legend. Yeah, there is this sense that Allegri is a little bit jaded by some of the coverage that his Juventus team gets, which is, oh, Napoli play better football than you. Oh, your season's going to be failure because you haven't won the Champions League. Um, and that wears. But I think Allegri, a little bit like Poch, a little bit like Simeone, is someone who who likes, who doesn't believe in this three-year rule, you know, that you have to move on because things start to go stale. You know, he's, um, you know, at Milan, he would have stayed there until he got the sack because... Silvio Berlusconi thought he didn't know a thing about football, even though he was the last person to win the league title with them, and basically kept things together whilst they were yeah, clearly in decline. So yeah, I'm, 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 yeah, I think people are more convinced than before that Allegri might be leaving. I'm, I'm still, I still think, I'm still siding he might stay. Okay, so enough of that sort of thing. We'll get back to the Premier League after this. People of Liverpool and Leeds, the Totally Football Show is coming your way for two live events this March and April. Join Jimbo Rory Smith from the New York Times, Optus Duncan Alexander and your very own Russian scouser Sasha Gurionov at Liverpool's Epstein Theatre on Monday, March the 25th. Jimbo and Rory will then be back on Monday, April the 15th at the Leeds City Varieties Music Hall along with Julian Laurent and real-life Yorkshireman James Horncastle. There'll be puns, there'll be punditry, there'll be stories we just can't broadcast on the regular podcast and the best question of the night will win something amazing like a signed book or a shaving kit. Yes! So don't miss out. Get your tickets at epsteinliverpool.co.uk for Totally Live in Liverpool on Monday the 25th of March and cityvarieties.co.uk for Totally Live in Leeds on Monday the 15th of April. And keep checking our social media feeds for more information. Hey, that top four race, looking very interesting, isn't it? Spurs losing, Chelsea drawing and then Arsenal 
on Sunday in the big game beating Man United. Matt Limerick says, when you talk about the Arsenal victory over Man United, can you start off with boom shaka laka? That's good work, isn't it, Michael? Because Lacazette? Yeah. It's not the first time I've heard it. I oh, really? Right. Oh. Yeah. Right. And also, Lacazette didn't score, so... No, but he's... Boom, Shaka, he, he, he won Oban. the penalty. True. And set up Shaka for the for the goal. Two assists. Did he? Yeah. In so the it was actually Lacazette, Lacazette, Aubameyang. Which is better. Which is be even fair. better. All right. Um, Emery surprised us and United with that lineup. He did, yeah, and I think he has to be commended for for being so bold. Um, you know, Ramsey and Xhaka uh, in centre mid, uh, Özil at number ten, and then the two strikers up front. Um, but I, I'm not sure you can go so far as to call it a, a tactical masterclass. Um, I thought United were unfortunate in many ways in that they created a lot of chances, uh, hit the woodwork twice in the first half. Lukaku should have scored the chance that he put against the crossbar from mm. that, that Luke Shaw cross. Um, I think Solskjaer perhaps got things wrong uh, with his lineup, the four four two, with Pogba stuck out on the left, which right from the get go didn't really feel like it was going to work. Um, and then when they when they changed their shape, um, they sort of got back into it a bit more. And because it was United's first defeat in the league under Solskjaer, you're sort of looking for for, for underlying reasons for it. But I think United were quite unfortunate and generally in, played in quite as much well. As they were fortunate when they had that famous win when De Gea saved there. Yeah. So maybe right. this was you know karma okay. coming. And, and they were flummoxed by Shaka's swastastic opener. Yeah, I mean, Solskjaer afterwards said, uh, I, I, yeah, I could be forgiven for thinking he's Brazilian rather than, than Swiss for the kind of swaz that he put on that because, you know, it was, you can see David De Gea just didn't know, yeah, you know, what to do with it. And none, none of us, I'm thinking, have been top-level goalkeepers, so it's hard for us to evaluate, but there, there were some harsh words for De Gea. It was surprising to see him so utterly stranded by a ball coming from so far away, but there was considerable movement on that ball. There was. I think he probably read slightly too much into the way he thought Xhaka was going to strike it. And it did move away from him. I mean, I think it's probably the most difficult type of swerve to deal with if you're a goalkeeper. I mean, Gary Neville in commentary said that it only moved about a yard, but it's not It's not that it moves only a yard. It's, it's the fact it was going one way and it went to the other side and it's difficult to change direction. Yeah, I agree with what Tom said. And, and I've been a little bit perplexed by the idea that Arsenal got this tactically spot on. Manchester United created the better chance at 0-0, the better chances when they're 1-0 down, maybe at 2-0 down. I think Arsenal were relatively comfortable, but yeah, I, I thought Manchester United played well. They hit the woodwork twice. Lukaku missed a really good chance um, in the, I think, fifth minute. And that came from a Luke Shaw cross. And the problem with playing a 3-4-1-2, as Arsenal did, is you don't have anyone to shut down the fullbacks. And that area of weakness was what created Manchester United's best chance. I thought Rashford and Lukaku linked really, really well. Um, and Arsenal really saved by uh, probably the best performance so far from Bernd Leno, who uh, made two excellent stops from mm. Lukaku, one with mm. his foot. But the one where Lukaku kind of went round him and Leno just scrambled back to make a block, I thought was probably even more impressive. Really? I thought that was a poor touch, wasn't it, from Lukaku? Uh, I think Lukaku could have taken it a little bit better, but I think Leno did well to pan make him panic. Right, fair enough, fair enough. It takes Arsenal's tally, this victory, against their fellow big six teams this season, if you're counting, to 12 points, which is double what they managed in their final year under Arsene Wenger. Unlucky not to have more, given what happened at, uh, in the North London derby as well, with Aubameyang missing the penalty, which he didn't miss this time around. Right, with that incredible, I'm not looking at the ball <laughs> penalty-taking technique. and That must take astonishing bravery. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Was it was it Nathan Ellington who played up front for Wigan, Wigan. at some point? And he was a very the prolific... The Duke, as he was known. He was a <laughs> quite a prolific penalty scorer. Right. And that was his thing, not not looking at the ball. And it's when you actually look at it and you saw the, the replay of Aubameyang just fixing his eyes on the goalkeeper, it looks yeah. a bit it's freaky. strange, a bit yeah. freaky. It makes a lot of sense, really. And the most successful penalty takers, I generally think, are the ones who do wait to see which way the goalkeeper moves and then put it in the other corner because it's, it's you know, it's basically impossible for the goalkeeper to save then rather than picking your spot and hoping for the best. When it works. When it works, yeah. because yeah. it wasn't the best hit penalty. I mm. mean, it sort of bobbled in. Mm. Well, De Gea was fuming as well, you know, when it went in as if De Gea knew what was coming and he thought he'd move too early. Right. Ironic because he'd moved too late. <laughs> on the... Uh, the curious thing, though, about this Arsenal performance was it came after a midweek that had seen Man United stage the remarkable comeback in Paris and Arsenal themselves losing 3-1 in the Europa League. Obviously, that was after our, our Thursday show. 
um, that Wren result. What happened there, Tom? And what are their chances of turning turning that result around this Thursday when they meet again at the Emirates? I mean, amazing result for Wren. Um, and I think particularly having having gone behind as early as they did, and you've got the you know the stadium is is sort of. You know, is is full, and you've got all the fans behind the team, and then Arsenal score early on, and there was a period where it looked like Arsenal might take control, um, but Ren sort of stuck to their task. Uh, obviously, the sending off of, of Socrates was was a big help, um, but I think the fact that they kept on attacking till the end to get that third goal and just give themselves that little advantage. Um, got another win at the weekend, three one against Caen, uh, uh, also coming from behind to win that, and yeah, you know that they're going to go into that into that game on Thursday with a huge amount of confidence. Uh, Again, expecting that Arsenal will will have most of the ball, but they're a really good counter-attacking team, man. I mean, yeah, Ismail Assar scored the third goal against Arsenal, got a couple of assists against Caen. You've got Mbanyang on the other wing. Um, they've got players coming back from suspension. Um, so, I mean, yeah, Arsenal winning 2-0 at home to a team of Rennes standing shouldn't be beyond them, but I think the fact that they got that they got that third goal does does give Rennes, you know, a, a, a little bit more of an advantage. Mm-hmm. Interesting. OK. Uh, ooh, there was a bit of a pitch invasion in the uh, Arsenal-Man United game. We'll talk about pitch invasions a little bit later on. We'll also hopefully be hearing from uh, Chris Goulding of the We Are Birmingham website and podcast, getting getting their take as you know, the people most, most directly involved in all this, along with poor old Jack Grealish. Anyway, uh, Chelsea taking on Wolves. That Hazard goal was a bit special. So was the defending until that point. Is that fair? Unlike Chelsea's defending on the Wolves goal... Yeah, they got torn apart by Jimenez and Hotter, who played uh, not just a 1-2, but I think a 3-4 through the centre of the pitch, which I enjoyed. Yeah, Sarri was incredibly dismissive of Wolves yeah. after the game. I thought that was bizarre. That was really, really yeah. unpleasant, actually. So to, to anyone who didn't uh, hear this, the interviewer said, well, Wolves were very organised against you. And he said, no, there's no need for organisation when you defend that deep with such a low block, mm. which well, yeah, which isn't true, is it? You do need to be organised. And the, he was explaining his tactical change to go to four two three one, and he basically said yes because Wolves just you know they didn't want to counter, they didn't want to do anything. So yeah, but I, I, th- I thought that uh, Hotter Jimenez um, partnership. I mean, I think they've been invo- they've combined for all of uh, Wolves' last three goals. And as Michael said. If you look at the goals, the, the goals they've been involved in, it's always them two just passing it together. They just seem to have this kind of kinetic kind of ESP. Yeah, they just mm-hmm. seem to be on the same wavelength, and just it's great strike play. As we would we'll later talk about with Iosi Perez and Solomon Rondo right, as well. Right, yeah, that big Newcastle win. Yeah, woof! What a, what a victory that was. Uh, lots of people getting very excited about Connor Cody and talking up his chances of breaking into Gareth Southgate's England team. What about what Spurs got up to down at St Mary's? Massive result this for both the top four race and, of course, the battle to avoid the bottom three. Spurs were looking good after Harry Kane scored his usual goal. His 200th, actually, of his career. Lovely ball from Deli Alley as well. He's back in the back in the team. I'm not expected to start in, this, in that game, but yeah, Spurs played very well in the first half. Should have should have killed the game. Um, didn't, and were made to pay for it. By some proactive management from uh, Hassan Huttel in the, the changes that he made. Again, one of the sort of stories of the weekend that he brings on Josh Sims, mm. who had been on loan at Reading, and I think he only made five starts for Reading so far the season. So hadn't really made. He wasn't coming back to the Southampton side because he'd been doing so well at Reading that they thought, right, we've, we've got to have this guy, and comes in and helps them, you know, really change the game, put Spurs on the back foot. Um, Spurs got complacent um, in the second half and also missed some pretty big chances. You think that that one where Eriksen again puts the ball in for for Kane and Kane has all the time and space in the world and thinks he doesn't and yeah blazes it uh, wide. Um, you know ultimately yeah really disappointing away performance again from Spurs in the in in the Premier League. Right was it was it the Valerie goal that it, it whizzes past three. Yeah, yeah. Three players. Danny Rose, Danny Rose basically yeah. steps over it, not realising there's someone coming Presum- in Well, him. I guess the first two are thinking, I don't want to touch this and put it into my own net. Mm. But um, that was extraordinary. And then, as was the moment when James Will Prowse steps over the uh, the free kick and you think he couldn't, could he? He certainly could. Yeah, I think of all the players in the Premier League, if 
if in football you could use a, a dead ball specialist like an American football to just bring someone on to take set pieces, I think he'd be the leading candidate because he is outstanding. He's got a kind of David Beckham-esque technique as he's shown two games in a row, almost identical free kicks. But in open play, I'm never quite sure what his position is. He's kind of a right centre midfield. I don't think he really belongs in either position. But Pep Guardiola said a couple of months into the campaign, he's, he's the best set piece taker in England. And he's shown that in recent weeks. Mm. Lovely whippage. Mm. Nice. Get a lot of whip he, on the ball. He also did the Ronaldo kind of celebration. Yeah, that yeah. Was what funny, was that about? Yeah. yeah. Well, he did a bit too. He did like the Ronaldo celebration where he jumps in the air, puts his arms to the ground, and goes "sioux." And then he did. You know, he had his tongue out, which is very Del Piero kind of. Oh, interesting. Both well, one very good free kick taker in Del Piero, one less good in Cristiano Ronaldo. <laughs> right. So fair. Um, so that leaves Saints uh, still two points from the drop because Cardiff won. Spurs, meanwhile, their top four hopes. Tom, are they on the rocks now? Yeah, they are. I mean, absolutely disastrous run of form, a fairly complete loss of momentum in in the league, at least. But you look, I mean, I think an interesting element here is the fact that Chelsea, who are in six, have a game in hand. Mm. Uh, They're currently four points off Spurs, but if they win that game in hand, they'd be a point behind them. So you then have Spurs, Arsenal, Chelsea and United separated by three points. Um, So, yeah, I think if I was a Spurs fan, I would be. I would be worried. And Spurs were 13 points clear of Man United when when Mourinho left. So, obviously, they've been doing a lot better, but Spurs have, I'm guessing, been doing a lot worse. They've Mm. only won two of their last six Premier League games. And they've been 1-0 up in three of those. Wow. And and, um, not been able to hold on to it. And it was quite interesting at the weekend where Pochettino obviously was serving uh, a touchline ban and yet um, insisted on doing the media afterwards um and was was very critical of his players yeah, the attitude it, it felt like there was a message in those words and i'm not sure if you could decode it for you. he says maybe this is our limit it's a little bit sad but maybe we need to operate in a different way from the start of next season i think we need more and we are not there we need to find a way to make the club better what's he talking about well, I think uh, from in terms of his players, he's talking about the mentality for the form that we've just alluded to, for the fact that their second half performance was so different from their first half performance that they can't uh, hold on to to leads, at least in the Premier League uh, recently. Um, but also from what the yeah you know, the club strategy is, um, because if they if they don't make Champions League, then they won't get the revenue that um, you get from that, and we all know how tightly. Uh, run that club is uh, and given that you know I agree with Michael the point that you've made a few uh, on a few occasions that having a settled squad and, and not um, joining in the rat race of spending for the sake of spending it is a good one but at the same time I think you know that will impact Spurs' ability to, to attract and um, buy players in, 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 the, in the summer if they don't get there so yeah I think mm. I think there is a a little bit of a message. Not the first time that Pochettino's made a kind of um, sent that kind of message to the. They are still the people third. Upstairs. They are third. They've got. A, I think depending on the draw that they get in the quarterfinals of the Champions League, got a real chance of, of of maybe reaching the semi-finals and being like Roma were last year, Monaco the year before that. They could be that kind of team in the Champions League this season. Um, and yeah, I mean they've been even though they've lost their last three away games, I think mm. they've still got the best away record in the Premier League, which is you know pretty astonishing, really. right? Their next game's away, you know, at Anfield. And I say next, it's not for ages because they're not playing in the FA Cup next weekend and they don't have a game because their opponents are. And then the following weekend, it's the international break. And then they come back and do the... that. I mean, the break could do them the power of good, of course. Yeah, quite possibly. Also, when they do return from that and play a home game, it might be at the new ground, Michael. Yeah, possibly. Um, I think they're going to have to have a couple of preparation events before then. Mm. But... It's looking promising, and it'd be nice to see them in the, the new, new stadium. And bounce. it looks—I'm excited to go there. It looks fantastic. Yeah, I mean, uh, from the pictures you've seen from from the inside, it looks great. But I've walked past it as well, and it's just—it's staggeringly large. It's—I it's, mean, I just—it's the, the size of Wembley, almost. I mean, it's smaller than Wembley, but like it has the similar similar sort of physical presence, and it's just been dropped into you know middle of Tottenham. Shame there's no cheese room there. Hi, I'm Rodri Giggs. You probably know me for being related to a famous sports star. That's right, my dad did play rugby for Wales. I've always lived a loyal life, always use the same brand of tea bags, I always drink in the same pub, and always support my country. A huge defeat for Wales. Questions will be asked of the manager. Questions will be asked. You see, loyalty gets you nowhere. Live for rewards instead. That's why I'm Paddy's Rewards Club ambassador. Paddy Powers Rewards Club. Loyalty's dead. Live for rewards. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. Begamblerware.org. 
on Spotify, Smart Speaker and podcast platforms everywhere. This is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Fans, wrong-headed fans running on pitches. Three incidents over the last few days. On Friday, a man was arrested after Rangers' James Tavernier was confronted in the uh, game with Hibs. Uh, On Sunday, as we mentioned, at the Emirates, a fan running on and giving Chris Smalling a bit of a shove by the looks of it uh, before trying to celebrate with the Arsenal fans after their penalty. And worst of all, at St Andrews on Sunday afternoon in the Second City Derby, Jack Grealish hit from behind pleasingly. Grealish keeping his cool and later going on to score the winner in a 1-0 victory for Villa, which moves them past Birmingham up to ninth, uh, four points off the playoffs. But it was, uh, I think, a scene that shocked many of us, not least the fact that after the, the fan punch Grealish from behind, Birmingham fans appeared to applaud him off as he was being escorted from, from the pitch. Some Birmingham. Some Birmingham fans, because not all Birmingham fans are like that. No. And indeed, on that note, let's hear from Chris Goulding of We Are Birmingham website and podcast. Chris, thanks for joining us. You're a a long-time season ticket holder at St Andrews. What did you make of what happened on Sunday afternoon? Uh, I've got to be honest, I was in complete shock when it happened. Uh, I saw the, the guy get past security and run onto the pitch, and he went past one Villa player and instantly you knew where he was going and it's hard to describe the the shock I know a lot of people I think they maybe had a few beers and the cheers were were out of order it was just absolutely shocking why Grealish Chris Uh, I think there's a bit of history there with him being a Villa fan um, growing up he gives it out a bit bigs it up and like you would do if you were up against your rivals but then there's also the side to Grealish which I think a lot of fans around the country don't like which is his play acting he's thrown himself on the floor and that tends to wind people up as well I think right okay but uh, obviously not to the extent that that, that any action like this is no, just of course not. So, it, y- no one's uh, no one's well there are people condoning it and calling the guy a legend and I can't understand that but I think right. a majority of the Blues fan base are, are very disappointed and feel a bit let down by the guy. Were you surprised at how many people applauded him as he was being taken off the field? Yes and no. I think I was I was in shock at the time. Um I think a lot of people that they'd been out on the beer um and as he was as he was taken off gave it a cheer much in the same way um, I, I've actually seen mentioned and I know that that was an on, on the field incident but when Dion Dublin headbutted Robbie Savage it was it was technically assault but it was during the game of football and Dion Dublin became a bit of a hero and he was cheered off the pitch um, and I think while not condoning either that was probably how people saw it it was like yeah go on do it completely not right and maybe those people will take a look at themselves this morning and think what was I doing why was I cheering that was completely out of order right how harsh do you think the uh, the penalties are likely to be for Birmingham a lot of people calling for even points to be deducted from the club Personally, I think if you if what the club have done wrong is they've subcontracted the security out to a firm that just can't handle it. If you come down to St Andrews on a match day, you'll see 16, 17 year old kids and people who are reaching retirement age and have maybe been maybe lost their jobs. Um, and it seems as though they're probably working for minimum wage. Can't really be bothered to to do much. If you look at the picture of the the guy getting escorted off the pitch there was a young kid and an older guy uh, they don't really know what they're doing I don't think um, and I think the one issue that Blues have had is that they've they've taken this uh, security firm that they've subcontracted to they haven't done their job um, and I think that what Blues are guilty of is preventing the fan getting on the pitch the same as Arsenal they're guilty of the fan getting on the pitch um, and I, I, I think that's what Blues should be punished for um, what the person's actions are when they get onto the pitch is a completely different offence. Um, you can't say that Blues are guilty of that person's actions in my in my eyes. That that's the individual, and that's to be dealt with by the courts um, and and to be punished properly as a as a criminal act. Chris Goulding, who was uh, keen to point out that it'd be a shame if. The actions of this idiot and the other many idiots who applauded him wiped out all the goodwill that's been done by 
it's a great community work that Birmingham and their supporters have been doing, which is a fair point. Also a fair point he made about Dion Dublin hitting Paul Robbie Savage. I'm just watching that. (laughs) (laughs) Can you just talk us through the dynamics? I don't remember this incident. Well, I mean... uh... Basically, this game is why the games are no longer played uh, in the evenings and instead are played at midday on a Sunday where theoretically people haven't been drinking. Okay, but Dion Dublin presumably wasn't on the source when he had... No, he wasn't, but there there were running battles. It's it's an extraordinary uh, thing to watch because basically Dion Dublin is not even in shot... Uh-huh. Uh huh. And uh, Robbie Savage is, has got the ball in midfield, about to play it forward, and someone just comes running from behind, from behind him, sides him down, and then obviously they they square up to each other, and then there's the uh, the aforementioned headbutt. It's um, right disgraceful. There's a great interview with uh, Dion Dublin in the current issue of 442 magazine, where he reveals that when he was a youngster at Norwich, he used to live with uh, Jason Statham. I'm sorry. You have to you have to buy the magazine to uh, find out the full backstory because oh, I can't Michael. remember. I can't remember. The cliff edge there, Michael. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine them two together on? Is it Holmes under the hammer? Yeah, nice. or equally in you know one of the many great Jason Statham films. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what should be done, Michael? Loads of listeners yeah. written, written written in with uh, suggestions like points deductions and that. What do you think? Uh, personally, I think it should be uh, something that punishes the fans rather than the team. So whether that's closing a stand as they do abroad or closing the closing the ground or maybe banning them from travelling to away games for a game. But personally, I prefer it if it's kept to the supporters rather than punishing the on-field performance. OK, that sounds fair. It's, as long as it sends a message. Well, I do think you have to send a, send message. a message considering it happened three times. But I think it's worth pointing out. I mean, there's been... Personally, I think there's been incredible overreaction, people talking about the moral decay of English society based mm. upon these incidents. But uh, top two divisions uh, at the weekend, 610,000 people attended football games. You did have these two bad incidents, but it tends to be a couple of idiots rather than something representative of people overall. OK, well, a busy weekend in the West Midlands um, because Darren Moore, after West Brom drew with struggling Ipswich, got that corner flag picture actually it was just a it was just the kind of it was the corner it was the pitch yeah there was no flag per se but yeah West Brom letting him go after a real dip in form only one of their last nine league games at the Hawthorns have come uh, have resulted in Baggy's wins but they are still fourth in the championship so a real surprise this but you know what the totally football league show that they'll have more in the totally football league show on Tuesday Afternoon. Yeah, like everyone who hasn't seen a single West Brom game this season, I think is a complete disgrace. And everyone who has seen a lot of West Brom games seems to think it's probably a logical decision. So it probably tells you something. Right. Somewhere there's a Scotsman and Englishman wandering around (laughs) West Brom. And yeah. Anyway, all right. One more in the Totally Football League show. After this, we address the relegation battle in the Premier League. Reeves says, please cover in detail Brighton doing the league double over Palace for the first time in 35 years. And this little French magician's involvement, he's talking about Anthony Nockert. Yeah. Yeah. You're looking your lips just at the mention of his name. (laughs) That was a great goal. Yeah, uh, an Iron Robin-esque goal, I think Mm. we can say. It was an eventful game for him because, you know, 10 seconds in, he goes in for 50-50 with uh, Milivojevic. Right. And I think he's only half a second late, but really plants his studs into a delicate part of Milivojevic. It could have been it could have been a red card to be fair. Absolutely. Absolutely. Instead, he produces the winner in this huge victory for Brighton who'd been in really desperate form on the road. It's the second winner in a row actually takes them up to 15th place. Glenn Murray who came into the side because who was it got injured Andone. in the oh, and actually proved to be quite a welcome addition to the team because he that was a great finish. Like yeah. a really, really difficult finish to do, I think, to take that ball like that. And uh, obviously against his old team in the A23 derby. Right. As Jonathan <laughs> Pierce was keen to point out. Yeah. Yeah. Not the M23 derby. The game match here I really wanted to focus on uh, was Newcastle-Everton. Obviously, there were other things that happened. Cardiff had a very important win beating West Ham 2-0, producing their eighth clean sheet of the season. That's more than United and Arsenal have managed. 
They don't play for another three weeks. And then they have Cardiff, Chelsea at home, City away, Burnley away, and then Liverpool at home. So this really was a much-needed win. Also this weekend, Leicester beat Fulham 3-1 with Tillemans looking great again. Tom, you were there at that game? Wasn't, I was indeed. Wasn't particularly going to focus on that unless you... Was there one thing you wanted to draw from that, Matt? Yeah, well, I mean, it was it was Brendan Rodgers' first home game mm. and obviously we're all eager to see what he's going to make of this this new job. Um, and he'd he'd set Leicester out in a sort of counter-attacking 3-4-2-1 when they lost at Watford uh, weekend before last. Um, but it was a, it was a, a 4-1-4-1 against Fulham um, and with this really um, sort of pleasing uh, attacking midfield quartet of Harvey Barnes, James Madison, Yuri Tillmans, uh, Damari Gray playing behind Vardy um, and what Leicester did really well was winning the ball up uh, high up the pitch and getting the ball through to Vardy quickly. We know that Callum Vardy, Chambers helped them with that really Callum Chambers well. did play a significant <laughs> role in that. Um, Harvey Barnes, by the way, whose removal from that West Brom side is, is, is seen by many who have actually watched a Baggies game <laughs> as being one of the reasons why their form has suddenly dried up to mm. Darren Moore's expense. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, back to your experience at the uh, King. Yeah, and, and you know, basically Vardy's um, relationship with Claude Puel, or rather lack of relationship with Claude Puel, be- became quite sort of symbolic of, of what was going wrong for Leicester and it's obviously going to be very important for Rodgers to get Vardy on side and mm. one of the things that he spoke about Rodgers after the match was 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 that was getting players up the pitch around Vardy and getting the ball through to him quickly and there were two perfect scenarios for Vardy the first goal and Didi wins the ball back plays it through to him and Vardy ends up squaring it to Tielemans for a tap in and then I think it was Vardy's first goal Madison wins the ball back and, and slips it through so signs of what Rodgers is trying to to change at Leicester and signs that it might be um, to Jamie Vardy's benefit OK uh, Fulham remain very much in the bottom three a yeah, Fulham, bit were, Fulham were pretty hopeless OK Huddersfield also pretty hopeless Losing at home to a Bournemouth side who I think had lost their previous uh, nine games on the road, but uh, two nil winners here. Uh, so that means that uh, well, Huddersfield and Fulham look gone. Bless them. Cardiff are on twenty eight points. Burnley and Saints on thirty points, and then Palace and Brighton on thirty three. A little bit further up with Newcastle on thirty four now, after that extraordinary comeback on Saturday against Everton. Rafa Benitez, three seasons now, or three years, he's been at St James's. That's got to be one of the best days, from 2-0 down to, to 3-2 winners. Well, also, um, when they when they miss the penalty and see Everton essentially go up the other end and, and double their lead, I mean, that usually is like a, a knife through the heart for any team. So to come back from that, I think it was extraordinary. It was the first time that Newcastle had come back from two goals down to win since October 2003. Wow. I think uh, when Bobby Robson was, it's only was still the, manager. It's only the second time in 394 games, according to a stat I read on social media, that Everton have been up 2 0 at half time and lost. Mm. Only ever happened once before in all that time. Anyway, and this was an Everton team that looked like it had turned that corner uh, the previous weekend with the crowd behind them in the Merseyside derby and that spirited performance against Jordan Pickford had the crowd behind him in this right. game. <laughs> so now okay what how big a role does he play in what happens to Everton? I think a massive role. I mean he he shouldn't be on the pitch um you know after I say uh, you know giving away the penalty. Um yeah he makes no attempt to play the ball. It's a it's a rugby tackle. But, I mean he ran off at half time um you know sticking his tongue out to uh to the Geordie fans. I mean, yeah. yeah it's worth pointing out on the um, on the non-sending off, the the rules were changed slightly in uh, 2016 in terms of this double jeopardy. If it's a penalty, right, then you shouldn't be red carded as well. Though in this instance, I don't think he was making any attempt to, to play the ball. But since that rule change, there hasn't been a single goalkeeper sent off in the Premier League coming up to three years. And Good it would generally Lord. happen four or five times a season and now goalkeepers are seemingly immune from it. Right. Are you the Perez, bit special? Yeah, I loved um, uh, Rafa Benitez's take on, on the, um, was it the Rondon goal where he says that goal, you could imagine Lionel Messi doing what Iose Perez did with the pass and you can imagine Alan Shearer finishing like Salomon Rondon did. Wow, imagine that. Fr- yeah, Messi imagine Shearer. that. <laughs> it is amazing though because when Perez sort of brings it down he does what you expect Rondon usually does you know in mm. terms of um, sort of good target man play and uh, just like Jimenez and, and Hotter you know it's just great uh, great partnership really. and uh, and Dini and De Lefe when they came on yeah, and I thought same. Arsenal Man United we had two 
Sides playing two up front, combining well. It was a bit of a throwback weekend in that respect. Nice, nice. Uh, right, anyway, so when Newcastle are moving themselves away from trouble, the, the bad news this weekend for the Magpies, the fact that Sean Longstaff is going to be out for the rest of the season with a knee ligament injury. That's an awful shame. Also, James, I mean, not to lay with the point on VAR, but Newcastle's winner should have been ruled out for offside. There were about five players offside. Oh, yeah, there was that. So, I mean, when you're in a relegation battle like this, you know, imagine if they stay up um, by, I don't know, a single point or something like that. I mean, that's... Yeah. It's pretty galling if you're but going that's down. Football. That is, that is sport. <laughs> that's football. That's football, James. sport. You can't post-mortem everything while the patient's still alive because you kill it. Yeah. <laughs> That's the uh, metaphor I'm going to work on before I mention it again. <laughs> uh, anyway, all right. Let's talk about Claudio Ranieri <laughs> after mm. this. Last Thursday, Claudio Ranieri returning from the wilderness to the world of top flight football management, taking over the helm of Roma. Returning to the club where he delighted fans uh, almost a decade ago, actually, mm-hmm. with the Gelarossi, when he very nearly for half an hour was about to snatch the title from Jose Mourinho's Inter. Which and stopped them doing the treble. Yeah. And he came very close to doing it he as did. well. I mean, Just... yeah, as he himself talked about this weekend, they were winning against Chievo, Inter were drawing at Siena, and I think it was it was Latin, wasn't it, got that late winner that no. day? Wasn't it Latin? No. no. That was a couple of seasons beforehand. Oh, OK. That was it against Palmer in, mm. the, oh, uh, right. in the rain. But no, I mean, the, the, the game that changed that title race was... Roma losing at home to to Samp, Samp yeah. and Philippe Mexes crying on the bench. And oh, I right. thought it was it was interesting that Ranieri, um, after getting the Roma job for a second time, said that not even winning the Premier League with Leicester um, essentially could help him get over losing that title. Because this is his club. It's his club. Romano Verace. And a lot of people on social media are like saying, well, you know, why has Ranieri got this job? You right. know, he's landed on, um, as you said, failing upwards. But um, the reality is, is this is an interim appointment. Um, they contacted him and he basically said, I will do this because I love the club. Uh, it doesn't matter how much you pay me. It doesn't matter if uh, I don't get the job on a permanent basis at the end of the season. I just want to help out my team. Yeah, that's what he's he's gone there to do. He's got a big job on his hands because of the injury crisis that there is at uh, Roma. But um, yeah, you know, I think uh, it's really important at Roma more than many other clubs for someone to be so the manager to understand the environment that there is around the club the right. atmosphere the fan base what it's like to work in that city it's very uh, peculiar compared with other other clubs michael you're a big fan of what he did last time he was there yeah they were just such a good team to watch um you know there was so much hype around uh, the era before under Spalletti and the kind of false nine but I thought Ranieri kind of perfected that you know Totti played the same role but with Vucinic running in behind they were brilliant and that Sam game I mean I'm not a Roma fan but I think if I could reverse one result in the last 10 years of football I'd you'd choose that one yeah really? I just love that Roma team it was such a great story and uh, if you could re- reverse one result in the last 10 years yeah yeah honestly that's an interesting question they Tom did, they were brilliant Dimicose <laughs> Um, we'll come back to you on this later on. Wales lose. Wales lose. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Michael. Yeah, Wales losing to Portugal in really? the yeah. uh, Euro 2016 semi-final. Right. Okay. Yeah. We'll get yours in a second, then. Then James. Anyway, so um, yeah, happy days, and, and and what a team. Roma. This Roma have Empoli this Monday evening, mm-hmm. and it's a big game because there's six points off the top four with this game in hand. They've now got Torino and Atalanta level with them on points. And uh, anyway, there was a big clear-out last Thursday in Roma after they went out of the Champions League against Porto. Uh, Di Francesco, the previous manager, let go by the club. And also Monchi, the mm. transfer guru, uh-huh. whose trades hadn't really worked out too well. But I guess if you let the likes of Alisson go, then this is going to be slightly the result. Uh, he's he's off as well. Uh, is he going to go to Arsenal? I think there's quite a high chance that he will go to Arsenal. I think it's... it's... Would that be good for Arsenal? Work wonders, of course, at Sevilla. He was famed for his ability to to produce gold from base metals there. With Emery there as well. With Emery, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, what was strange about his time at Rome, I suppose, is that he he tied his future to Francesco's, which that's not what you appoint a sporting director for. Sporting director is there to provide continuity of the project, regardless of who the manager is. You are there to demand defend the interests of the club, not the manager, because all managers are temporary. You know, I think in terms of his track record, you want to look at the the 
the signings that he made, okay, he made Roma a 69 million profit over two years or something like that. Um, you could say that the depth that he gave the squad helped them reach the semi-finals of the Champions League last year, but a lot of the players that he sold were bought by his predecessor, Walter Sabatini. You know, in terms of the um, sort of good signings that he's made, Kolarov's been unexpectedly very good. Zaniolo obviously has attracted a lot of attention. Cengiz Under. But then you give a five-year contract to Javier Pastore, who's got no place in the team and mm. is, you know, I think the highest paid player at the club after Dead Ossie. I, I think, yeah, in, you can't really judge a sporting director's work over one or two windows. I think you have to see how it progresses over a longer period. Um, and he obviously hasn't got that and thinks he'll be proved right over time. But I'm okay. sceptical about whether these transfer gurus, whether their skills are necessarily as transferable between clubs as managers or players there's just such a big structure between you and getting the players and then even if you sign good players you're dependent on the manager or dependent upon outside circumstances mm. so it just seems that one or two transfers that go well and and these guys get reputations as fantastic whereas yeah. you know we've seen Sven Mislintat at Arsenal didn't yeah. go well so I have to see if Munchie does better at Arsenal if he goes there fair enough all right then well let's get some odds now on some of these football matters producer Ben has been speaking to Paddy Power Thank you, Jimbo. Lee Price from Paddy Power is on the line as always. And Lee, what a weekend that was and what a midweek we have to look forward to. Let's start, though, with the Premier League. The race for third and fourth is really hotting up. What are the numbers telling you? Oh, it's wide open, isn't it? And this has swung away from Man United worse than the Granite Shaka shot. Not so long ago, they looked rock solid in the chase for top four. But now they're more likely to finish sixth, according to our odds. And our betting also says Tottenham should finish third, despite everything. They're 8 15 for a top four spot. It's Arsenal we expect to see finish fourth. They're eight to eleven to secure Champions League qualification through the league. Chelsea are even to get back into the top four. Man United seven to five. On to the Champions League then, Lee. We've heard from Rafa Honigstein already today, but tell us what the markets are saying for Liverpool versus Bayern Munich. Well, as you heard earlier in the show, Bayern Munich have rediscovered their mojo in recent weeks, so it's perhaps no surprise that we favour the Germans here. They're evens to win the match. Liverpool twelve to five. Either team on penalties is twenty to one. As a first goal scorer, we mentioned Bayern's form. They've scored 11 goals in the last two league games. Four of those Lewandowski. He's 3-1 to one to score first. Or, if you've had to the Reds, you can get 11-2 to two on Mo Salah opening and scoring. 7-1 to one Sadio Mane. Or 17-2, to two, a big price for Bobby Firmino. Barcelona and Juve were kept goalless in their first legs against Lyon and Atletico Madrid. So, uh, give us the numbers, please, on both of them going out this week. <laughs> yeah, it certainly continued the trend of last week, wouldn't it? And we fully expect Juve to get knocked out. It's 2-9 to nine that Atletico qualify. That two-goal cushion looking very comfortable. But we're even more confident about Barcelona's progress. They're 1-6 to six to qualify and 1-5 to five to see off Lyon within 90 minutes. If you do have a French fancy, Ben, it's 7-2 to that Lyon go through. So put that shock double together and it's 4.5-1 to one that both Barcelona and Juventus go out. Unthinkable, surely. Right, you can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com. All prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's 18 plus only. Be gambleaware.org. And when the fun stops, stop. While all that was going on, James, what have you been doing? I don't think I've ever seen this before, James, but Sergio Ramos is, is interviewing himself. He's asking himself questions on Twitter, uh-huh. um, such as, why did you record the documentary? Uh, and this is all in English. There are certain commitments made and it never remotely went through my head that the game could have turned out as it did. The recording itself was scaled down as the game went does he on. Talk, does he talk about? Does he answer a question about when you picked up that deliberate yellow card? He does. Yeah, yeah he what does. does he say? Was the yellow card in Amsterdam an error? Absolutely, it was an error, and I take the blame two hundred percent. Okay. Um, he also, you know, takes these questions. Yeah, very direct um, correct questions posed by himself to you know. <laughs> Did you argue with the president in the dressing room? Dressing right. room issues are discussed and resolved in the dressing room. There's yeah. no problem whatsoever. And everybody has the same interest at Real Madrid. Right. Well, if he could reverse any fixture in the last 10 years, I, I think I can guess which one it would be. But, James, we never got your answer. About no, I, th- I, I concur with Michael. Oh, really? You can't yeah. have the same one, though. That's not the rules of the game. Um. Okay. Mm. 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 Yeah, okay. Would it be, I mean, Real Madrid-Juve from last season? No. No. Buffon for Gigi, do it for Gigi. Oh, something for Gigi then, yeah, maybe. Yeah. So yeah, Cardiff. I don't know. Really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, you keep Manzukic's goal though from the Cardiff final, mm. even if you were to change things. The right. thing is, it's not just. Re- I mean, it's reversing it. It's not 
reversing the scoreline. It's, it's saying you can play again. With the Juve's finals, I don't really have the impression that letting them play again would make any difference. <laughs> you know what I mean? Fair, fair. Yeah. Um, but anyway, have a ponder on that because I'm sure we're going to return to this question. Okay. It's a great question. Um, what have you got this week, Tom? Uh, lots of watching Champions League, Boom. which I'm looking forward to. As yeah, ever. me too. Especially after that, that build-up to the, the Barcelona-Leon. Mm. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, once all the Champions League football's done, we'll return on Thursday. Daniel Story, Julian Laurence, and Jack Lang will be in the hot seats. Oh, hello, Tom. Can I just mention, as I yep. mentioned them when I was in on Thursday, Colwyn Bay oh, yeah, that's handed right. the shareholder vote about whether to remain in the English league system or return to the Welsh system. Right. They voted to go back to Wales. And today they have. Cox. They it. have. Uh, no, that doesn't work. What was? What did you say? I was trying to. Work, anyway, I was trying to give it a fashionable kind of term, but yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of. Um, anyway, and today they've started the um, the process of formally applying to join the Welsh system as of next season. And when they announced that they were going to have this vote, they they released a slightly clumsily worded statement in which they said that whereas their hearts wanted to remain in England, mm. their heads said that returning to Wales was the only way forward. Really? Which has not been to the taste of the fans of the various Welsh clubs they'll be mm. playing against from next season. So Ooh. while there may be a welcome in the hillsides for Colwyn Bay, Ooh. it may <laughs> not be a warm one. How will they overcome the backstop? I mean, this is all to be discussed. I'm sure that, I'm sure the chairman's got a plan. How hard can it be sorting that something like that? Right. He's just in history. Be a doddle. Excellent. Listener, we're back on Thursday. Look forward to speaking to you then. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com and don't forget to check out our other football podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. Supporting your team can be a beautiful thing, but then come the injuries, the goal droughts and the downright disastrous defeats. That's a little bit like life, really. And here at the Totally Football Show, we believe we should all support each other the way we support our team, through the good days and the bad. And that's why we're continuing to work with Calm, the campaign against living miserably, a charity dedicated to preventing male suicide. On average, 12 men take their own life every day in the UK. So that's your starting 11 and your manager every single day. And part of the problem is that many of us still feel uncomfortable talking about mental health and suicide, and this can often stop men from opening up and getting support when they need it the most. So if you're worried that someone close to you is having a tough time, check in with them and let them know that Calm is there. Every day from 5pm till midnight, Calm provide a free, confidential and anonymous helpline and web chat for any man who needs support. Visit thecalmzone.net to find out more about Calm.